Bible. And today, or I'm going to say this, we just finished talk to, talking about the seven main biblical genres last week, those types of literature that appear in the Bible, and today is quiz day. Yes, quiz day. As I put together today's lesson, I really wanted to take some time to review and practice. I found there wasn't enough time to do that and go over some new concepts. So I decided that today we're going to focus on that practice. We'll take a look again at, at some new concepts next week. Today we are putting to the test the interpretive principles that we've learned over the last few weeks. We'll be looking at a number of passages from different biblical genres and we'll be looking to apply the principles that we've learned. Let's pray as we get started. <clears throat> Holy God, I, I do ask you and beseech you, Father, that you would assist me now and assist us. Give us, uh, give us understanding of the scriptures. Give me the ability to speak it. Keep us far away from error. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, as I often pray, open our eyes to see the wondrous things that are in your law. I pray, Lord, that we would be instructed on how we ought to live and then also be motivated by what you, what you say. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So, a number of uh, questions or problems on today's quiz. We're going to be taking a look at each one. The first has to do with Genesis 3. So open your Bible, or grab your Bibles, open your Bibles, and turn to Genesis 3. This has to do with the fall of man. I'm going to present you with an assertion and you tell me whether this assertion is valid. This is a valid interpretation on Genesis 3. <clears throat> Here's the assertion. After Eve ate the fruit, Adam ate the fruit, not because he was deceived like Eve was, but because he did not want to live in a world, even a perfect world, without his love, Eve. Is this... A valid interpretation, why or why not? What do you think? Yes, Steve. Well, can't we speculate? What, what principle are we going back to, Steve, that we've talked about? Right. Very good. There's just not enough evidence to support making this type of judgment on Adam's motivation. And as we've learned, especially with narrative, when there's not enough evidence to make a judgment, don't try to. It's possible um, that there is something to this idea. We do know that the New Testament tells us that Adam was not deceived. So whatever his motivation was, it was a little bit different than Eve's because 1 Timothy 2.13 says, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into, into transgression. But what exactly motivated Adam? What was his thought process? It's difficult to tell because the text doesn't give us any information about Adam other than what verse 6 says, or in terms of Adam's, um, uh, Adam's thinking, and that he took the fruit from his wife and he ate. Certainly, 
at the core of his decision has got to be the same thing that's at the core of every kind of sin. That is that he was engaging in self-exalting rebellion. Self-exalting rebellion against God, and he knew it. He was not deceived. This is the same thing that happens to us when we're presented with opportunities to sin. But we can't get more specific than that. There's just not enough evidence. So we do want to go back to that principle that we've discovered. Could Adam have been romantically, in a weird way, motivated? It's possible, but probably not. We don't have enough info, though, to really say. Whatever justification or rationalization that he did have in his, hand, his head, though, it didn't matter, because any excuse that he used would have been invalid for rebelling against God. By the way, does anyone know where the idea of Adam being romantically motivated was fam- Do you, Does anybody know where this idea was famously presented in literature? This is just trivia. Emma? Yes, very good. If you ever read John Milton's Paradise Lost, the epic poem, um, that's the way he describes in his imagination Adam's motivation. He sees Eve take the fruit and he says, oh man, well, I don't want to live without you. But again, that's just speculation. We don't, we don't have any um, good evidence of that. All right, good. So that was our first question. Next quiz question. Again, I'm going to present you with an interpretation, an assertion, and you tell me whether it's valid, why or why not. This one is based on the book of Acts. Here is the assertion. It is biblical to have one leader making decisions for the church because this is the pattern that the apostles set. Paul, like the other apostles, was appointed by Jesus as leader of the churches and was not subject to the authority of others in the church. It's the same for pastors today. Called by God, they have final authority in the church. You remember, especially in Acts, Paul has a desire to go to Jerusalem and the different people in the church that he meets with, the different churches, they keep saying, no, don't go to Jerusalem. We don't want you to go to Jerusalem. And he says, no, I've got to do this. I'm not going to listen to you guys. So is that, is that a pattern for us to follow? And does that give um, pastors a final authority in the church? Is this valid? Why or why not? Yeah, go ahead. Very good, very good. You're going back to one of the things that we've talked about. Our principle, also with narrative, is that just because somebody does something, even if he's a righteous person, that doesn't mean that you should do the same thing. You need to confirm it with the rest of the scriptures. And certainly, if we took took even a moment to look at what the New Testament says about church leadership, you would discover that this is completely untrue. The pattern, as Khalif mentioned, is for elders, is for a plurality of leadership for the church. Just to give you some of the verses with that. <clears throat> Titus 1. Titus 1, 5 to 6. You don't have to turn to these. I just will mention them to you. Paul says to Titus, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach. And he goes on to say, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. I want you to put elders in 
in the, in, the, in the churches in Crete because we need people to oversee the brethren, oversee what's going on in the church. Then he gave, Paul also gave similar instructions to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3, I'll, I'll mention verses 1, 4, and 5, Paul says this to Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. And in verse 4 he says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So Paul gives the instruction about elders to these two young leaders. He says, I want you to put other leaders, appoint other leaders in the church of qualified men. Paul meets with elders on his way to Jerusalem, so he recognized their uh, authority and, their, and the need for them in the church. And Peter, interestingly enough, calls himself an elder, and he puts himself um, uh, among other elders. In 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 5, Peter writes this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And he goes on. So certainly, we can't take what the... Um, we can't take what Paul was doing or the other apostles and, and their role and say, okay, well, we'll just translate that same thing into the church. But what about Paul? Why wasn't he under the authority of church elders? Or why were the other apostles, why did they have, it seems like a, uh, a higher leadership role than even the elders? Yeah, what were you going to Danny. Yeah, very good. Right. We could get into the discussion of whether Paul was um, doing right by, by going to Jerusalem or things like that. But certainly we have to recognize that the apostles were unique in their own time, like many things in the book of Acts. It was a time of transition. The New Testament church um, was, was getting established, and Jesus had these special messengers, these apostles, who could do miraculous signs, who were able to get revelation from God, who had special authority in, in, in doing what they did. And that was for that time. That's not something that continues into the present. So we do want to go back to that principle that we've discovered, that is, when you see somebody do something before you imitate it, you've got to ask yourself, was God doing something unique with this person? Or was this person even doing something that wasn't wise or wasn't right? I need to check with the other scriptures. Very good. So we've looked at two questions here. Two questions as part of our quiz. Our next question, though, is actually a, a couple of questions, and it's based on a passage in Ezekiel. So go into the Old Testament now. I don't know if you actually turn to Acts, but go back to Ezekiel. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 17. Here we're going to read a parable. And I'm going to ask you about the parable's meaning. Ezekiel 17, and this is going to be verses 1 to 10. Let me just turn to Ezekiel myself. By the way, any comments or questions before we move to our next review question? Yeah, Steve. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. All right, now Ezekiel 17. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10, and let's see if we can answer these questions. Who or what are the two eagles? Who or what is the vine? And what is the significance of the ruin foretold for the vine? All right, let's see what it says. Ezekiel 17, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with great wings, long pinions, and a full plumage of many colors came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. He plucked off the topmost of its young twigs and brought it to a land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. He also took some of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow. Then it sprouted and became a low, spreading vine, with its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and yielded shoots and sent out branches. But there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and sent out its branches toward him from the beds where it was planted, that he might water it. It was planted in good soil beside abundant waters that it might yield branches and bear fruit and become a splendid vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its sprouting leaves wither? And neither by great strength nor by many people can it be raised from its roots again. Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it completely wither as soon as the east, or will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it? wither on the beds where it grew. All right. I like using this parable as an example because it's probably one that we're not as familiar with. But what does it mean? And especially what are these, what do these parts of the parable mean? I'm going to give you a couple of minutes because if you remember what we've said about parables, I want you to take some time to look at this passage and see if you can come up with the answers yourself. And after two minutes, I'll check with you. Okay? So, Remember what we said about parables, look at the passage, and see if you can come up with the answers to these questions. Please don't use your study Bible notes. Just try and find it yourself. If you weren't able to figure it out, that's okay. But let's see, let's see um, if, we, if we could find the answers. What are the two eagles? Yakalit. Very good. The eagles are Babylon and Egypt. What then is the vine? Yeah, Rob. More specifically? Jerusalem would be included, and, and Israel's correct in a way, but we can be a little bit more specific. What is the vine? Yeah, Cheryl. Judah, yes. Just um, need to, I, it might not be abundantly clear in the passage in the sections that we're looking at, but Israel's already been taken into exile in the northern kingdom. So this is talking about Judah. And then what is the significance of this ruin foretold for the vine? If those other parts of the symbol are indeed the eagles being Babylon and Egypt, what's going to happen to, or what does it mean that God says the vine is going to be uprooted?
what does this mean, this ruin foretold for the vine? Yeah, Khalif. That's right. It's talking about the devastation and the captivity that's coming from Babylon. Now, if some of you are saying, well, how did they get this? Well, how do we get this? Sorry? Exactly, right? We have to look at the context. Again, remember, parables, it can mean anything unless we're paying attention to the context. And here, this is, this is, uh, it is a parable, but it's also, we could classify it as a prophetic symbol. So either way, we're paying close attention to the context. And as George, as, uh, George said, we go right to the next set of verses, and we hear an explanation. I'll actually read it so you can see the connection. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Say, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took its king and princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. Remember, just to bring back to your mind, according to 2 Kings 23-25, to Judah was invaded twice by Babylon. The first time, it wasn't so bad. The king of Judah surrendered, and he only took some of the people into exile, the most important ones, but he didn't devastate Jerusalem, and he didn't devastate the land. But there is going to be another time where they do come, and it's going to be a lot worse. Anyway, so verses 12 to 13 are talking about that first time. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping the covenant that, keeping his covenant that it might continue. But he rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many troops. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? That sounds just like the questions he said about the vine, right? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh and his mighty army and great company will not help him in the war when they cast up ramps and build siege walls to cut off many lives. Now he despised the oath by breaking the covenant. And behold, he pledged his allegiance, yet did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath which he despised and my covenant which he broke, I will inflict on his head. I will spread my net over him and he will be caught in my snare. Then I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there regarding the unfaithful act which he has committed against me. All the choice men and all his troops will fall by the sword, and the survivors will be scattered to every wind, and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. So even though this explanation might not be um, point by point like some of the New Testament explanations of parables, this is, this, um, these extra words here tell us how we should interpret this whole thing with the eagles and the vines. The cedar whose top was cut off is indeed Judah, and the top that is planted in Babylon, a land associated with merchants. The top would be um, the king, Jehoiachin, and his family and the other nobles there, which kind of makes sense, right? The top of a tree, you would think of like the most exalted position. They were displaced into Babylon. But seeds are planted back in a fertile land, and a new vine grows. And it, it bends, at first, towards the first eagle, which makes sense with that king appointed by Babylon to rule Judah. This would be Zedekiah, who said, yes, I'll serve you. I'll be your, uh, I'll be your ruler in the land. But even though God warns Zedekiah, I have 
provided Babylon as ruler, as part of my judgment, don't rebel against him, don't even think about turning to Egypt, he does. And, and his people do as well. They try and throw off the yoke and seek Egypt as their ally. Remember, now, at this time, Egypt was another great power. It's like this, it corresponds with the second eagle. It also is powerful and majestic. And the vine turns towards it. But the parable points out how decisively Judah would be dealt with, like an uprooted vine. We've talked about previously the great devastation brought upon Jerusalem and Judah because of this. There's the slaughter of Judah's leaders, the slaughter of the king's sons. The king's eyes are gouged out. He's taken prisoner to Jerusalem and he dies there. The, the city wall is broken down. The temple is destroyed. All the, the buildings in the city are razed. It is, um, it is a devastating. It is an absolute ruinous judgment. But God said, this is what happens when you don't submit to me, when you don't submit to what I provided. There's something also interesting here that I found striking about both the parable and, and the explanation, or really the parable. Did you notice anything strange about the description of water? It mentions water a couple of times. Anything seem odd to you about the way he describes the water? Yeah, what, what about abundant waters? Uh, I actually don't know. <laughs> not, not super green thumb. I would think that you would want to plant something near, near abundant water so that it could stay well watered even when it's not raining, even when there's not that much weather. In the, in the parable... It says the vine, the seeds, and the, and the vine grows in a place of abundant waters. And to make this uh, make sense with the two different kings, that seems to be indicating Judah. It says, I'm putting Zedekiah back in this place of abundant waters. I'm putting Judah back in that fertile land that I've provided, which has abundant waters. But when Judah turns to Egypt in the parable, what is it seeking from Egypt? What does it want? the second eagle to do for it. It wants it to water it. And that seems strange. If you're in a place that already has abundant water, why would you need someone else to water it? I think there, there is something instructive about that. And that even though God had totally provided for Judah... And um, in a sense, it was already fertile and abundant. They were not wanting to rely on that. They wanted to provide for themselves. They wanted to seek provision elsewhere, specifically in the place God told them not to go, which is in Egypt. So I think that that, too, is instructive. What was it that I wanted to say? Yeah, there's a principle for us there, too. Do we look for provision outside of what God ordained for us, even though we've already been richly provided for? After all, we do know the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. A lot of our sin is indeed based on the fact that we don't believe God has provided enough for us. Anyways, if we understand this parable and um, what God is saying in the first part of this chapter in Ezekiel 17, that makes the latter part of the chapter much more understandable to us. Look at verses 22 to 24. Now let's see if we can understand what this means. Verse 22 in Ezekiel 17. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will perform it. Based on the symbols provided above, what is God promising in this second parable-like section? Say that again, Khalif. Um, can you be more specific? What kind of king and where? That's right. This is an allusion to the Messiah, right? I'm again going to bring back Judah's kings. I'm going to take from that cedar. I'm going to take from that, that line of kings that I've already talked about. And I'm going to get a branch. I'm going to get a sprig. And I'm going to plant it back on the mountain of Israel. And um, he talks about how it's going to become a stately cedar. And all the birds are going to nest under it. And all the trees of the world are going to know that he is the Lord. When was this fulfilled? Trick question. It hasn't been fulfilled, right? This is another one of those prophecies about the Messiah. Messiah did come, but he was not installed as king. People were expecting him to be the king, but he had another thing that he needed to accomplish at that time. So when will this happen? This is something that, that would point to the last days and the, and the setting up of the millennial kingdom, when God does indeed fulfill his promise to take from the line of kings of Judah and bring that king back and put him in the mountain of Israel. This goes back to that other principle that we were talking about when it comes to prophecy. Not only do we want to take the symbolic sections and make sure we're paying close attention to the context, but when it comes to the timing of future events, what is the other thing that we wanted to remember? That's right. Even if they're in totally different what? Yeah, time periods or eras, yeah. He's talking about restoring the kingdom, and maybe people who are reading this, they, they expected that to happen right away. But this is actually going to take place a long way away from the other events that he described. So we do remember that also about prophecies. That sometimes, even though they're describing future events in the same section, there could be different eras for those events. So immediate destruction was coming to Judah, but farther, much farther ahead of that was the restoration of Judah's um, Judah's line of kings in Israel. Right, good. Doing well so far as we continue through our, our quiz here. I want to move away from Ezekiel now and go back to Exodus. We're going to take a look at a question about Exodus. <clears throat> Exodus 25. 
is where our next question appears. Exodus 25, verses 17 to 22. All right, this is a description about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, part of that description. Here's an assertion. Tell me whether this is valid or not. <clears throat> the description of the construction of the Ark of the Covenant is not relevant for us as New Testament believers, since we're no longer Old Testament law, and we don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. So this isn't really relevant to us. Is this a valid, um, valid assertion? Why or why not? Yes. Uh, I didn't read the first sentence. Part of it, you should make a mercy seat. Mm. Stop right there. It's Jesus as a mercy seat. It's very, very well. Right. This, this is definitely invalid, especially when we consider that even though we're not under the Old Testament law as believers, what does the law, what are two things that the law shows us? Yeah, God's character. We're going to see more insight into who God is because he's going to be consistent in, in how he does things. And we're going to see that character manifested in the laws that he gives and the directions that he gives. And what else? has to do with what Brian was just saying. Yeah, Cheryl. We're seeing connections, right? We're seeing connections into the New Testament. There's, um, there are sometimes direct pictures, but other times just principles in the Old Testament law that are reflected in the instruction from the New Testament and the truths from the New Testament. So let me read this passage, these set of verses here, and let's look at what are the things that are instructive here about the character of God or that do parallel things in the New Testament. Let me read, starting in verse 17. <clears throat> You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. There are other directions there, but let's just focus on that section. What do we see here that tells us about the character of God or that parallels something in the New Testament? What's one thing? Yeah, Cheryl. Yeah, that is the placement of the, uh, the, the different pieces of the ark is important. 
He wants the law to be inside it, underneath the mercy seat, and then he's got these cherubim on, on the two sides, on the top. Yeah, I think that's going to that's gonna tell us something, and I'll, I'll let you guys think about that a little bit more and, and maybe even bring that out. What else do we see? Yeah, Yolanda. It's interesting that the place that God chooses to put his presence on the ark is on the mercy seat, right? Above the mercy seat. First of all, I feel like that title, mercy seat, is really, <laughs> really informative. That, just the fact that God is willing to meet with you in the place he wants to meet with you, is, is it called a mercy seat? That tells you something about his character, that he is a merciful God. He does want to make a way for you to come to him. And that, that way is through his own mercy. And connecting it with the idea of the law, that mercy seat being, being on top of that law, there is something else in another passage that, that connects with the idea of the mercy seat. In Leviticus, something special, I think it's Leviticus, something special happens to the mercy seat once a year. Anybody recall what happens to it? Say that again? That's right, on what day? That's right, on the Day of Atonement, blood is put on the front and on top of the mercy seat. So I think that too is going to reflect something, right? The idea that you're going to need blood to obtain the mercy of God. You need something to cover your breaking of the law, remember that because that's like right underneath it, to be able to meet with God and receive his mercy. And that, of course, corresponds with something, doesn't it? Yeah, Eric. Yeah, and it's not just the Ark of the Covenant, but many of the things that God asks the Israelites to make connected with this tabernacle and the temple are out of gold. And there's a reason for that. And that's supposed to be a reflection of something, and you were alluding, it, alluding to it, Eric, but why, why gold? Yeah, Francisca.
That's a good observation. So it's not just that God wants to have these precious materials, but there's even a, a progression of more and more preciousness as you get closer and closer to where God actually himself resides. What were you going to say here, Landon? The sacrifice had to be appropriate for, for right, because God is holy, God is beautiful, God is glorious, so the things that are going to be connected with him are going to need to reflect that in some way. So yeah, I think we certainly do see that in the ark and in the way the tabernacle is constructed, the way the temple is constructed. What were you going to say, Eric? Yeah, and, and God uses that to help inform our, our understanding of him. Even though gold is never going to fully reflect the glory of God, it does help us a little bit towards that. Yeah, Francisca. And I think um, one other thing I wanted to point out is the, the, the stances of the cherubim, right? They're not looking out at the viewer or, or the person who, who would be coming to approach them, but they're looking towards the mercy seat, right? The focus is going to be on the preciousness of God, not just in the material construction, but even in the stances of the, the figures that are on this ark. These angels, they're going to be glorious, but they're looking at something else. And I think we see that even in the way it's constructed. We could say more about this, but certainly this idea that the Old Testament law is not relevant, even something like the construction of the ark, is very relevant, even for us who have had the Old Testament law fulfilled for us. Okay, good, 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 good. I appreciate your comments there. Let's take a look um, now at 
Ecclesiastes. We're staying in the Old Testament here. Question five, our next part of our quiz, is in Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at two lines of poetry. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8. Okay, Ecclesiastes 7, 8. And the questions we want to consider is, what can we use to help better understand these poetic lines? Hold on. There we go. <clears throat> and what concepts in this verse are connected? Here's the verse. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Notice the way these lines are put in your Bible. What genre are we looking at? Brian? That's right. This is a part of the wisdom literature, but this is certainly poetry, and the lines have been set up like a poem. So... And answering that first question, what can we use to help better understand these poetic lines? What concept, Rob? Those are all types of what? It is kind of like a pattern. The, the, the actual term for it is parallelism. We're looking at how the ideas are, are similar ideas are put next to, each other, next to each other, especially in a very similar grammar. And here, the, the parallelism is between the end of a matter is better than its beginning, patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. So what concepts are connected between these two lines? Steve. So to be able to enjoy the process or to, for the end to be better, what needs to be connected with that? Patience, right? And then what we might not think of as right away being connected with the other part, but because of the parallelism, these things are put together. What is connected with um, not the end, but the beginning? Say that. Is that the translation from, which translation is that? Okay. Okay, yeah, it does say anger there, which would certainly be connected with the idea from um, verse 8. But it says, we're talking about um, pride, or the NASB says haughtiness. Pride is connected with uh, not, not the end, but with the beginning, and that, that seems a little bit odd. Why is haughtiness connected with that? I think Steve brought it out for us a little bit, but the author meant for these, these ideas to be connected. And there might be a, a, maybe a, a few ways that we can see them being connected. I think uh, Steve brought out one, that when you are patient, it allows you to actually see that beneficial end. But when you're not patient and you're thinking selfishly or pridefully, you're not, you don't care about the end. You'd rather move on to new things. Or we could also say that if you are patient, your end's going to be good. And if you're not patient, then your end's not going to be so good. So they're not going to be looking forward to that. What were you going to say, Brian? 
Okay. Well, I think it's actually probably good that you um, they mention that, though, because this, these lines of poetry do appear in a section of poetry. And not only can we use parallelism to see how things are related within a text, but parallelism also helps us to see what in a section. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, what I was just getting at here. The way our, our perspective changes when we're, when we're thinking wisely, right? Because parallelism, besides showing you how things are related, what else can it do? Yeah, it shows you a main idea, shows you a theme, shows you what's emphasized. And if we look at the verses that come before and even some that come afterwards in, in chapter 7, we do see a theme here when he says, I'll just read some of them for you. Uh, a good name, starting in verse 1, is better than a good ointment, and a day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. And, of course, it goes on all the way to verse 8. The end of the matter is better than the beginning. So what theme or what main idea is emphasized as you go through this section? There's a contrast, right? What's emphasized? Yeah, Stephen. And the wise person does what as opposed to what the foolish person does? It has a lot to do about where's your focus, right? The, the wise man, he wants to be, um, he wants to see things as they really are. He wants to go into the house in the morning, not because he's really depressed and he really just wants to make himself feel bad, but he wants to, he wants to be sober. But the foolish person he is in the house of pleasure. He just wants to laugh all the time. He just wants to have fun. He doesn't want to consider what is really real. And that connects even with what we're looking at there in verse 8. That mature perspective wants to see things how they really are. But the immature person is only looking for pleasure. And that, that, leads, to, uh, that leads to unwise choices and ultimately to ruin. The New Testament connects with this idea uh, it's echoed nicely in, a, in a, verse, a set of verses from 1 Peter. Here's what 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 7 says. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men. Remember, lust is just the word for uh, desires. But for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, 
they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. It's not that Christians, and I know the pastors emphasize this even when, he, when he's preached from Ecclesiastes, it's not that Christians are to be depressed or that they're to, to not enjoy the different parts of life, but they're, they think rightly. They ought to have the right perspective about things. They ought to have the end in mind. That's one of the things the New Testament keeps dry, or drawing our attention towards as well. We ought to be doing that. So, we were reviewing there our poetry principles, the idea that parallelism can help you see how things are related and also can show you what's emphasized. I have two more questions here. I don't know if I'll get to both. So let's um, briefly take a look at something from the Proverbs. Go to Proverbs. Just a little, little bit of page turning there. Proverbs 25, verse 20. Proverbs 25, verse 20. Again, we're going to have an assertion here, and we need to know whether we should go with it or not. Proverbs 25, 20 says, Like one who takes off, of a, takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Okay, here's our assertion. Christians never should sing songs to people who feel sad or troubled. Because doing so will only agitate them. Why? Mm. Very good. Right. Very good. Thanks, Alan. I do want to make it clear. There are some Proverbs that are very absolute, especially when they're talking about what is sin and what isn't. But there are plenty of them that do just give principles that have exceptions. And certainly even in the Bible, we can see songs and music being used to soothe those who are troubled. Can anybody think of any examples? Saul, right? He called David in because God gave him this spirit that made him feel terrible, it made him feel troubled, and David's music playing made him feel better. Many of the Psalms are actually David describing how sad and how, how troubled he is. And certainly that music would be um, designed in a way that it probably reflected that, and it would be used for others who were hurting at that time. But there is a true principle here, and that is that when someone is feeling sad or when someone is, is troubled, if you just come in and are singing to them or singing around them, especially if it's very joyful or raucous music, it's going to be... It's going to be like you just took off their garment on a cold day. Or um, like this um, uh, bubbly reaction of vinegar and soda. It's going to be something that hurts them. So we do see that principle from Proverbs. But there's a other principle too where we mention that well, we, need to, we do need to take time for many Proverbs to think about, well, how should I apply this then? How should we apply this verse? Yeah, Francisco. Exactly, right? You have to be sensitive. You have to be discerning and say, what would really help this person? Is singing songs, especially a certain type of songs, the best thing for this person right now? Do that around him? Or maybe I want to change my song. Or maybe I'm not going to sing for this person right now. I want to do the thing that's really going to help them. So I think, think absolutely. We do want to take some time, especially with the Proverbs, to take um, time to think about how exactly we should apply that general principle. Finally, 
I want to um, go back to the New Testament for one last question. You guys are doing well on this quiz. Last question has to do with Philemon. The book of Philemon is nice and short. Turn there, please. <clears throat> Philemon is right before Hebrews. That might help you find it. Originally, I had, I had wanted to take a long time this question, but we don't have as much time, so I'll give you the express version. But when trying to understand the book of Philemon, if you've read through it before, what is Paul, the writer's main message in the book? Why did he write it? Yeah, Alan. Yeah. Right, that's, that's a big part of it. Having um, Philemon, who owned the slave Onesimus, who ran away, to accept and restore him. But there's something else to it there. It's not, you, you may miss it, because it, it isn't explicitly stated, but Paul has another request in mind connected to that in this book about Onesimus. Well, that's, that's going to be part of it, too. Um, and that's part of it, that accepting and restoring. But there's something else. Danny? Yes? Yes, forgiveness? Um, okay, hopefully I'm not going out on a limb here on this, but I think there, I think there is something else here. Well, certainly there's a lot here about changing the, the master's understanding of the relationship with the slave. But uh, let me just uh, bring out a few verses for you here. Um, going into, well, one of the reasons I brought up this passage was to talk about organization, right? Because what genre is this book? One of the letters? What biblical genre? call it exposition, right? It's one of those explaining or persuading type books. A lot of the letters, um, or I think maybe all the letters fall under that category. So here he is trying to persuade Philemon to accept him, but there's something else. Or I would argue that there's something else. And if we're looking for the organization, which we should, anytime we're looking at an exposition, we want to understand it better, we should look at the structure. He's making a request to him about Onesimus, there's a, there's a section in the very beginning, verses 4 to 7, where he talks about his confidence in Philemon doing what, he, what Paul's about to ask. He makes his request from verses about 18 to uh, 14, and then from verses 15 to, to 22 about, this is just the way that I've divided it, 
he gives some extra encouragements as to why, or why Philemon should do what he says. But I want to read for you what the request is in verses 8 to 14. Verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. There's a request there that's more than just restore the relationship of, of these two people. What does he want Philemon to do for Paul? That's right. He says, I want you to send Onesimus back to me. I wanted to keep him with me, but I didn't want to force you to do that. So I'm sending him back to you so that you can voluntarily do this. So I think that there's more going on here than um, just the relationship. Paul wants to benefit from Onesimus' ministry, and he wants Philemon to be involved. The way he is persuading Philemon of this we don't have time to, to fully flesh this out, but there would be a lot of tensions in the background in making this request because slaves were valuable. And um, depending on how skilled a slave was, that could be a big hardship for someone. Uh, I read a source that said a slave, a skilled laborer, would cost about 2,500 denarii, which, remember, denarii is a day's, day's wages. So that's pretty expensive. And if he's somebody who had a big role in the household, then um, not having him around could be, could be a big issue to Philemon. And certainly there was the conflict between them that, that necessitated the running away in the first place. And so these, even though Philemon, according to those first couple of verses, is somebody who's known for being encouraging and for um, demonstrating true faith, Paul wants to encourage him, he wants to persuade him that there's a way that you can be an encouragement to me there's a way that you can encourage the other brethren. And I don't want you to be worried about um, uh, the, the financial implications of that because you're doing something that, that is even more valuable, that is even more beautiful. What are you going to say, Brian? I think so. And the different parts, we don't have time to fully flesh this out, but the different parts of this are all appealing to the idea when he, um, when he talks about um, Philemon's character or when he talks about the need that Paul has and how Onesimus is able to fulfill that need. And even when he says, if Onesimus is wrong, do you charge it to me? But by the way, you owe me, you owe me your own soul. He's not trying to be cheeky. He's just saying, I want you to see what's really valuable here. And I want to give you the opportunity to engage in that and, and bring encouragement to the brethren, bring unity to the brethren, and allow us all to experience the joy of this. Yeah, Francisco.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that, that principle is consistent through the different New Testament books. That um, He could have just said, hey, can you send an estimate to me? Or, hey, can you accept an estimate? But he wants to present the message in a, in a particular way so that he can direct Philemon's mind to that joyful type of service, to, um, to even doing more than Paul asked, as he says towards the very end of this letter. And that's the kind of service that God wants to direct us to as well, not out of duty. And even what may seem radical to other people, take something that's really valuable to you, like that slave who was a, a huge part of your business or your household, and then send him to someone else who has uh, a need and fulfill that need. That does seem really radical. Obviously, we don't have slaves, and, and praise the Lord that we don't, we don't do that. But other things that are really valuable today, we might think ludicrous to just give this away to someone who has a need, like a car or a computer or a house or your time and your comfort. You just say, no, whoa, that's way too valuable to just give away. But if someone has a need, and if, you're, and if we're thinking the, the same way that Paul wants us to think about being persuaded by what's more beautiful and what's more valuable, what's more joy-giving, then I think we're going to do some of those things. Last thought, Francisca. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for letting me go over time just a tiny bit. So um, next week, we'll resume talking about some new concepts. Hopefully, you found this, uh, this review and extra practice helpful. Let's pray as we close. <laughs> Holy Father, thank you for today. I pray, Lord, that this wouldn't be something that we merely talk about, but it's something that your spirit would enable us to put into action, that we'd be continually persuaded that, um, that the things of this world are not as valuable or beautiful or joy-giving as, as you are, God. So I pray that we'd be motivated by that. And I pray that you would assist us as we continue to study the scriptures, that you would show us more of your beauty and value. Bless the rest of the service and the pastor as he presents the word to us today. I pray this in your name. Amen.